0: Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis, Genesis chapter 11. You know, the search for significance, safety, and control has been happening from the very beginning of humanity. Genesis 11 tells the ancient and and rhythmic story of humanity's united defiance and failed attempt at finding those things apart from God. It's a modern dilemma still. Aren't we supposed to take control of our own destiny? Aren't we supposed to do what feels right and and push against every boundary that threatens our personal comfort? Aren't we supposed to live autonomous lives free from any and every restraint? Let's read Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words Which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that, Lord, by your spirit, you would put your finger on areas of our lives that need to be addressed, that you would continue to work in us. Um, Lord, through your word, that we would see truth about who you are, and truth about ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would shape us, that you would move us, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, three points, I I pray, will help guide us through this story in Genesis 11. Number one, united defiance. Number two, resolute mercy. And number three, half-built towers. First, united defiance. We see this in the first four verses. And if we read this story out of context, we might, we might think to ourselves, hey, hey, what's the big deal here? This people, this group of individuals found good land. They wanted to settle down and, and, and they built a city and a tower. What's wrong with that? The story has a context. Each narrative In the first part of Genesis, it lays a foundational truth about God and humankind. And it's been highlighting for us the downward spiral of mankind's sin. It's it's been hard to read at times. It gives us a clear view of God's heart and character as well and how he responds to that sin. These aren't lighthearted stories, are they? Last week, we, we wrapped up the story of Noah. We looked at... Chapters eight and nine, and we learned of God's wholehearted commitment to Noah and to creation and ultimately to us. A bird with a leaf in her mouth, a bow in the sky, all of it shouting, I won't give up on you. I refuse to give up on you. And then we read that that painfully familiar ending of Noah there, a man of the earth. There's a garden. He's naked. He's drunk. There's shame There's sin. There's curses. It's a familiar ending that reminds us of the ending of Genesis chapter 3. And it reminds us to keep looking and anticipating for the promised rescue. To keep asking, God, what, what will you do? How will you show yourself faithful? And then we have chapter 10. And we haven't read it. We're not going to read the whole thing. But we find this listing of nations, of people groups that descend from Noah with their locations. And if you notice, if you go back and read chapter 10, you have their locations, you have their their languages, there's geographical, there's ethnic, there's political and linguistic categories given to us. And, And along the way, in chapter 10, it highlights certain figures with greater detail. For instance, in chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, there is a, a son of Cush named Nimrod. He's described as a mighty hunter, warrior before the Lord. Some think this is the first tyrant or dictator of the land through whom the kingdoms of Babel and Assyria Assyria have its roots. And then in chapter 10, verse 25, there's a man named Peleg. Uh, and, and, and in his day, the earth, it says, was divided or split Some think actually it was during this time that God divided the languages, the nations that we're reading about in chapter 11. And then in chapter 10, verse 31 and 32, uh, it emphasizes languages and lands and nations. And so, so more than just a lineage here in chapter 10, this is a map of the nations artistically put together to communicate what? Common origin. Every human goes back to one source, one family, to Noah and to give this sense of unity in the ancient world, that God had a plan for all the nations. But we keep scratching our heads wondering, what is that plan? And then we read chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And we say, wait, wait. What? One language? What's going on here? We just read of the nations with their regions and their languages. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is this isn't in chronological order. It's a flashback which serves once again, and we shouldn't be surprised, as a literary device showing how the sons of Noah became divided. In verse 3, it says, they said to one another, come on, come And this word is, it's an invitation, like a rallying cry. They are encouraging each other. They're taking decisive action, a resolute and and unified action. Let us make bricks. And when when you hear that, let us make bricks, think modern technology. I mean, they had found uh, the brick, and and, and they were resolved to use this modern technology. And then verse 4, come on. It says it again, come on, come. Let us build ourselves a city, this rallying cry, a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so contextually, we understand, whoa, whoa, time out, wait a minute, this isn't just about building a city and a tower and settling down. There's something more here, their desire to make a name for themselves Verse four of chapter 11, you see the word us, ourselves, us, ourselves. This is about pride, superiority, thinking they are better than. This is arrogance. Their fear is to be scattered. Scattered by who? By God. Do you remember the divine mandate given to Adam and then the new Adam, Noah? Multiple times in chapter nine, eight and nine, be fruitful and multiply. So here, Many believe this is a a deliberate attempt to avoid God's intentions and desires. Now, we're going to settle down. We're going to do our thing. We're going to build a city and a tower. We're making a name for ourselves. You ever wrestle or try to avoid God's intentions and desires for your life? We've all been there. You know, what can end up happening in our relationship with God is that we create a God of our own making, a God of our own imagination, and we label it the God of the Bible. We can say things like, yeah, I follow God, but I'm not going down that path. I'm not not going to follow his commands. I'm not going to, we want to say those things, but we say, yeah, I follow God. I have these conversations uh, a lot here in this city. People acknowledge God. Well, and I, I'm always quick to say, well, are you talking about the God of the Bible? When you say God, because God is a generic word in our culture. So what God are we talking about? Oh, the God of the Bible. Are we learning who the God of the Bible is and what he is asking of us, what his intentions and his desires are? And are, are they becoming our desires? You know, to follow God, God is truly defined safety and security, significance and meaning. But that doesn't guarantee our safety and security in ways we often prefer. There was desire and there was fear in the hearts of those who were building these, the city and this tower. And building a city isn't wrong. But the city and the tower symbolize humanity's united defiance against God. Their united defiance against the rule of heaven. This is human arrogance and pride and rebellion. Do you remember Adam and Eve? How they disregarded God's command. They they sought to be like God. They they pushed, not against, but they pushed through the boundaries that God had, had, had set up for them out of love. God had set up these boundaries for them. And they pushed through those boundaries. And in the same way, this group of people, they're they're united in their defiance against God. And instead of believing God is, is for them, they believe he is in some way against them, that he has become a rival, a villain, withholding something that they would be better off having. We're not exempt from falling prey to that line of thought, that belief, not at all, not at all. Has God become a villain, a rival? Are you believing that He's withholding something from you that you'd be better off having? Here is clear refusal to live within God given boundaries. That's what we have here in these first four verses. And, church, the story is a mirror, it's a mirror. We've talked about how the stories in Genesis, these narratives become a window where we can look into these stories and see the character and the heart of God. But we also learn that these stories are a mirror that teach us about ourselves. And so here, this is a mirror and it's hard to look into where are we trying to find meaning, security, and control or power apart from God? Is it in her? Is it in him? Is it in money? Is it in sex? Is it in technology? Is it in our achievements? Is it in our health? You know, when the masses are saying it, when everyone seems to be united in it, it's easy to become caught up in it and to believe that it's good for us. You know, the mantra of our day, take control of your own destiny. Do what feels right. Push against every boundary that threatens your personal comfort. Live free from any and every restraint. Come on. Let's build that city and that tower. Where are you pushing against God's boundaries? Where are you breaking through those boundaries? Where have you written God off? Where has He become the villain? Where he's withholding more than he's giving. Where are your desires for significance and safety and control driving you? Where have you said, I'll break whatever boundaries necessary in order to satisfy my desires? Now, maybe you haven't said that, but where have you acted on that? Where are your fears driving you? Fears of being lonely, fears of missing out, fears of losing love. Fears of being rejected? Where are your fears driving you to push against and break through loving boundaries that God has set? What about political ideologies and parties? Political leaders? We can look to political parties and ideologies to find meaning and significance, a sense of safety and control. It doesn't take long to remember political ideologies of the past that united people together but wreaked worldwide havoc and mayhem that brought death and devastation unlike anything else. It doesn't take long for us to remember those ideologies. Pride and fear is a dangerous mix. And that's the mix that's before us in verses 1 through 4. And pride and fear, this dangerous mix, has led to all kinds of modern-day evils, And you know it's still happening right now. And it's like a bad dream that we can't wake up from. This search. Humankind, mankind's search for significance, safety, and control apart from God. That's what this is about. And God keeps leading us away from that. Pointing us to the reality of who he is. Getting in our way. This tower with its top in the heavens is the symbol of mankind's achievement and greatness. That's what this is. Here is where safety and security is found. Here is where significance is found. We're making a name for ourselves. Here is where power and control is found. It's what they're saying. So humankind Scaling the heights of heaven like a staircase that brings them into God's presence on their terms, not on his. Where are you approaching God on your terms instead of his? This tower was like a, a temple tower. You can, you can see pictures of similar temp, temple towers uh, in ancient Babylon and Assyria. These temple towers were, among other things, a place to learn and control their destiny by reading the stars. And so there would be priests that would climb the tower performing various magical rites at different levels. And at the top, there was this little area where they would meet with the gods. But this was about control. This is humanity's defiance, This is an attempt to find significance and safety and control apart from the living God. Number two, resolute mercy. Verse five, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Verse five, we see a little bit of humor and a whole lot of irony. The Lord actually, it says in this story, which by the way, this is, we've talked about the literary genius of Genesis. This story is very, um, in its original, it's very lyrical, it's rhythmic. Um, And and, and the words, they they rhyme. And and it's a very succinct story, isn't it? It's nine verses. It's, It's meant to be remembered and meditated on and just thought about deeply, and responded to. It's meant to carry with us and think about. And so when we, we look at the structure and how the story is, is, is actually put together, there's even a rhyme, a rhythmic quality to it. It's, it's really fascinating. But there's humor and there's irony, even though it's a very serious story that we need to come face to face uh, come with. There's, there's humor and irony here where it says, the Lord had to come down to see the city and the tower, as if to say, Where's this tower you're finding all your hope in? This tower that reaches the heavens. I can't even see it. Literally in verse six, it's, it's, this is all they plan to do will not be withheld from them. And so here's the deal. God knows the injustice, the dehumanization, the corruption and pain that it will produce should they remain in this place of unified defiance. And he is determined to get in the way. He's determined to intervene. And he resolves to break it up. He resolves to break it all apart. Building project is over, God says. Verse 7, come, let us. He says, let us go down. You know, we believe in one God. There aren't many. There aren't. Uh, there aren't. We don't. We believe in one God. <laughs> what am I trying to say? That's what I'm trying to say. And He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and some, as they read this, you know, it's similar in Genesis chapters one and two. This this plural form of "let us." Is this a divine counsel of some kind? Is this the complexity of God's being? I think so. I think that's what this is. But here's here's the deal. God decides to confuse their language so that they wouldn't understand each other. This unified pursuit of a life independent of God, it revealed that they lacked true understanding. See, they thought that they understood what was best for themselves, and now they won't be able to understand each other at all or continue down that path at all. And so here is an expression of judgment, but it's also merciful intervention. This is severe mercy. You know, sometimes God breaks things apart because he knows they would end up breaking us. You know, in the moment, we may not like it. We may not understand it. I've never experienced my children in the midst of me disciplining them say, Dad, before you continue, I just want to say thank you for taking the time. I, I know that you love me. Um, I know that you care about me in ways I can't comprehend right now. And the lines that you have drawn for me, those boundaries are just so good. The restrictions that you have given me, thank you. They will teach me so much about myself and set me up for the future. We push against God's boundary lines as if he is against us. He's for us. He loves us. You ever hold on to something you know isn't God's will but find ways to justify it? God wants me to be happy. I've heard that a lot. As if to say, well, then I can basically do whatever I want because God wants me to be happy. Sin is sin. Right? So... You know, if if I'm lusting in my head, I might as well be actually, you know, carrying that out. Or or no one's perfect. These are the excuses that we make. Turn with me to James chapter 4. Here in James chapter 4, he writes to the church. And he reminds the church that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And he's not saying, James isn't saying that we're not to love our enemy or our neighbor or anything like that, those who aren't in Christ. But what he's saying is, um, don't commit adultery with the world when you're committed and devoted to the Lord. Don't you know that the Lord is jealous for your attention and affection? He is. He wants your wholehearted commitment. And then he goes on to say this, after saying he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace in verse 6 of chapter 4, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Just think about that for a moment. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, for years, I, I read this and I didn't think about it being directed towards followers of Jesus. It was, I didn't think about it being directed towards me when I'm walking in my own pride. But it makes sense now, uh, and, and a friend, helped me to see this. Just the Lord in his opposition against me and my pride, it's out of love. And it's the same with me and my kids as they go down a path that isn't good for them. I oppose them, not because I'm against them, but because I'm for them. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And every time, in the midst of my own pride, when I'm in an argument, or I'm angry, or I'm walking in sin, when I humble myself before the Lord, it's like just the floodgates of heaven open up. It gives grace to the humble. It's true, it happens all the time. Because I sin all the time. I have this experience with the Lord as I fall short and as I walk in pride and arrogance, as I call on him and I ask for forgiveness and grace in that moment, he brings it because he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's calling us to repentance. Let's go back to Genesis. So in verse 8, it says, So the Lord dispersed them. He scattered them over the face of all the earth. What the people feared the most of being scattered happened. And then in verse 9, it's given the name Babel, means to confuse. so ironic for a city that boasted in its greatness. This city, city of Babylon throughout Scripture, becomes a symbol of humanity's ambition to dethrone God. You can read a case study of this in Daniel chapters 1 through 4. King Nebuchadnezzar. Many years later, from Genesis 11, King Nebuchadnezzar would set up his own idol in the same plain that this tower was constructed. And he would call his whole kingdom to bow to it. And the idol represented him. It was later that the Lord struck Nebuchadnezzar, his mind, He went like insane for a period of time. After being confronted several times by the prophet Daniel, and then he came to his senses and he repented and he acknowledged the Lord as the God of the heavens and the earth, the one who rules, whose kingdom will endure forever. And he says he's able to humble those who are are proud. The king of Babylon. It's a case study that the Lord is able to humble anyone. No one is too far gone in their pride. He did this with a man like Nebuchadnezzar who was a tyrant in his day, an egomaniac. Back to Genesis 11, the Lord dispersed them. He scattered them over the face of all the earth. It's repeated again. And now the flashback is over. It's over. And we're left staring at a half-built city and tower, a monument to mankind's failed attempt at finding significance and security apart from God. And that leads us to our final point, half-built towers. Church, our lives are littered with half-built towers and failed attempts to find significance and safety apart from God. The fear of not having something or the desire to have it at any cost has brought us all down paths of defiance and rebellion compromise and indifference and listen you might be there today you might be in this place today and i'm so glad you're here as we continue to follow the story in genesis god calls one man abraham out of the scattered people of the earth out of this mess and with this dark backdrop of genesis 1 through 11 abraham is called out of idolatry out of the scattered people of the earth to be a blessing to who to all the nations, that through Abraham, through the nation that will come from him, which is the nation of Israel, God would do what? He would come down again. He would come down again many years later. He would come down again to get in the way. He would come down again to break things up. And with resolve, merciful resolve, he would come down to unite us to himself. Jesus the Son of God, stepped into the ruins of our half-built towers. That's what he did. And he came proclaiming things like we read in Luke. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life Will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains it all? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Our failed attempts. are no match for God's grace and love. Our failed attempts are no match for his mercy. Turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God shows his love for us. Don't forget it. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He stepped in. He got in the way. Maybe you're afraid of letting go. Maybe you're afraid of what it will require of you. Maybe you're afraid of losing what significance and security you've actually received from things you know God isn't okay with. Hear me. God is for you. God is not your rival. God is not the villain. God is not withholding something from you that you'd be better off having. There is no greater expression of his commitment to you and love for you than the gift of his son, Jesus. And it's only by faith in him that you will find the significance and the safety that you've been searching for. You were created to know him and live in him. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, we receive a new unity that is found in Christ, a new identity that is rooted in Christ, new life, forgiveness of sins. All right, so what do we do with this story in Genesis 11? Where do we go from here? First church, there's warning here and there is mercy here. And it's, it's, it's a mirror, but it's also a window. And I want us, and I've been praying for us this week, that we would hear now in the next few moments, take time to reflect and respond. That we would surrender here today. That we would repent, own up, to areas that we've been walking in pride and arrogance, unwilling to let go, but that we would stand open-handed before the Lord in surrender today. That we would confront through repentance, through owning up to the fact that we've been compromising, that we've been walking in materialistic ways or we've been walking in selfishness and pride or indifference or compromise, maybe out of fear of what God might require of us or take away from us that we would express that to him this morning. Express dependency and trust in the Lord. And then maybe we would pray this way. I want to walk humbly before you, Jesus. Fill me with new desires and new convictions to believe your mercy and love is strong enough to transform my life, to deliver me from pride and arrogance and from believing that I can do this life on my own. Or that I could find significance apart from you. Deliver me from that. And if that's your prayer this morning, he will meet you in that place. He is able to bring the deliverance and the transform- transformation that you need. A new unity, a new boast, meaning and significance and security. Church, it is found in Jesus. And so let's do this now. I want to invite Parker to come up. He's going to lead us in a song. And what I want us to do is, is, is take a few minutes here in this place. We have time. There's no reason to rush. And, and, and with this story open before you, staring at it, asking the Lord, do a work in me. Give me new desires. Show me. Put your finger on areas that I've been holding on to that I need to let go of. Lead me to a place of repentance. Help me not to be afraid of what you have for me. Trust him to do that work in you. Maybe you're here and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. You've heard about this for a long time or maybe you've never heard of it. Where where, where do you begin? You begin here with this humble dependence and saying, Jesus, I need you. I recognize my need for you to save me out of my sin and shame. Deliver me, save me. I look to you. That simple expression, changed my life. So let's reflect, let's pray. Let's do some work here of repentance and surrender before the Lord. If you want to kneel where you are, if you want to sit where you are, it's fine. I'm going to invite Mark to come forward. I will be down here as well. If you want prayer, we want to pray for you as well. Let me tell you what this isn't. This isn't a show. This is a time of sober reflection, but also a time to acknowledge God's grace and mercy is enough. And so let's go to him today. Let's take a few minutes to do that.